I'm going to be reading from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. The parable of the weeds. I didn't do that. (laughs) He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this place to come to gather together and worship. We are grateful that you love us so much that you sent your only son to bear witness to you, to teach us about you, and to leave your everlasting word with us. As we listen today, may our hearts be open, may our ears be open, and may our eyes be wide to all of the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning. It's good to have you with us today. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on out to Kidmo. If you are a guest, you have a... Second, <coughs> excuse me, second through fifth grader, uh, you can go out with them and watch where they're headed. They have their own small group, games, uh, teaching, some stuff that they do back there, and we'd love for them to participate in that as well. Let me just say thank you to everybody who participated last night. We had a lot of fun. Uh, did you have a lot of fun last night? Yes, we had a lot of candy, sent a lot of candy home with the kids, so you probably kids were up all night long, right? That was a lot of fun, I'm sure. Um, we're giving all your kids lots of candy right now. <laughs> so when you pick them up, it's going to be an exciting afternoon at your house. But um, thank you for everybody that contributed, that came and volunteered, and that uh, took part in everything that we're doing. I, am I really loud? I feel really loud. We're, I'm echoey? Yes, that's the, the God voice coming out <laughs> is the echoey part. So... Um, but thank you for all that are doing that. I do want to tell you, not only do you have the opportunity to give to Room in the Inn for the meal for November, uh, the way that you do that, there's a little box that's out in the lobby, a little yellow box, and you can just um, put, if you, if you put a check in there or cash, whatever you want to do, you can just put it in there. Um, also, we're going to be adopting, I think, at least one family from Room in the Inn for Christmas. So in the next few weeks, you'll be hearing about some of our Christmas giving opportunities, ways that you can contribute and do that as well. And so we're just thrilled at, at, uh, to be able to partner with them for so many years, and uh, Kathleen Cunningham kind of heads that up and gets us involved there. If you're not familiar with the Room in the Inn, it's an incredible ministry. Uh, if you ever find yourself in a place, um, if you're a, a woman and you find yourself in a place where you don't have a place to live, and even more crucially, if, you find, if you're a woman and you have children and you need a place to live, they provide that. And not only do they allow you to come with your children, which that is, it's very hard to find a place like that. 
Um, but not only can you go and just have your basic needs taken care of, uh, it's a program that leads you to the ability to be on your own, to uh, go get a job, and then they kind of birth you out into this new self-sustained life. So uh, what we do is very minimal um, just in helping to provide a meal once um, every couple of months. Uh, and other churches do the same, and we've had the opportunity over the years to partner in many different ways. So uh, if you'd like to participate in that, then we would love for you to do that. We're going to be catering this, this month's meal, uh, so we do that occasionally. We'll just cater it, and um, so you don't need to sign up to actually bring something. If, you'll just, if you want to give a few dollars to that, then, then that will take care of it. Also, I want to remind you, and I know I'm kind of repeating some of our announcements, but I, you know, it, different things happen in the service, and by the time I'm done teaching today, especially on this parable, you'll have forgotten everything I'm saying right now, but um, we do have a shower next week for the Ables, and I hope that you'll participate in that, and uh, we're going to have a good time, so plan to stay after next week. I think a soup, not, it's like soup, we're doing soups and stuff, so you can see, and chili, soup, soup and chili, so go see... Uh, Kim, come see Kim if you'd like to be involved with that, and uh, and so we'll, that will be next week. All right, uh, Matthew thirteen. Are you all ready to learn? Okay, this is one of those parables. I'm, okay, let me be let me be very honest with you. I've written this sermon twice now, this week. <laughs> uh, not like twice ever, like twice this week. So uh, it, we. I, I normally have, try to have two pages of notes. Two pages of notes normally takes me about 45 minutes to an hour. I have five pages of notes today. So uh, that means we're going to have to move because unless you brought lunch with you, we can't stay here all day, although I could because that is how interesting this parable is. And I want to tell you this, the, the ramifications of this parable are enormous. I mean Enormous. And you're going to respond in one of three ways. And I'm going to talk about that at the end. You're going to respond in three ways to this. And your response may not be good. Because this is one of those parables that you read and you're like, ooh, I don't like that. But as with all the parables, we can go and get the low-lying fruit. You know, the stuff that hangs low on the tree that we go and grab it. But the really good stuff is higher up. You've got to go deeper. So I want to do that with you today. And we're not just here to talk about judgment. Judgment's a part of this. But there's, there, the implications of the tares living in your life are huge and enormous. And so I'm not going to read the parable again, but I want you to know that this follows almost immediately another parable we have already talked about, the parable of the sower. Now, the parable of the sower basically comes down to the fact that there's a sower who's out sowing seed. And he sows some, and it falls on the path, and it's hard. And he sows some, and it's going to be uh, among the thorns. And he's going to sow some, and it's going to be in good soil. And so he's talking about the different seeds. And, and so of the four types of soil, the parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares, depending on your translation, is following up that same idea. And so when we go, th- I'm not going to read the parable of the sower. You can go back and read that. But the path says literally the birds devoured the seeds. And, and as Jesus explains that, because the parable of the sower is one of the few parables that Jesus actually goes back and explains. Fortunately for us, he does that with the parable of the weeds or the tares also. That then those, and the way he describes that is that those are the people that they don't understand it whenever they receive the gospel. They don't understand it. They don't have any basis for understanding it. And then the enemy comes and just kind of chokes it out of them. 
Some seed falls on the rocky ground. This parable says that that means it sprang up quickly, but it had no root and it died. The way Jesus described that is there's no foundation. So persecution or suffering is just too much for them. And, and they just, they walk away from their faith. The thorns is more akin to what we're talking about today. The thorns choke them. However, in the parable of the sower, it talks about the care for the world. We're so enamored with this world, the care for the world, the hardships of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the gospel. And what is very important that he says about this group of people is that they do not produce fruit. We're going to come back to that later today as well. So the thorns kind of choked it out of them. And then he says the fourth type of soil is the good soil. And that means that literally they understand the gospel and they produce fruit. Now, all of us in this room probably want to believe we're, the, we're like the good soil, right? We, we were planted in the good soil, but so did those that were, the seed fell on the path, those that fell in, on the rocky ground, and those that fell among the thorns also believed initially that they were the good soil. We, we find is that as we are living this life following Jesus, there are challenges, amen? So, As we go through this parable, I think what Jesus is trying to do is also talk about that group, that thorn group. But he he turns it a little bit. Rather than talking about the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, there is literally a plan in place supernaturally within the kingdom that is meant to trip you up. And you're going to be tempted to not believe what I'm about to tell you. And that's why I have so many notes, because I have a ton of scripture to share. And and, and whenever we hit one of these topics, I give you so much scripture simply to say, don't believe me. Don't believe me. You need to believe what God is saying, what Jesus is saying. So that's why I'm I'm going to give you so much today. So hang in there. If you're following on you version, then you can take all this with you. And I don't have no, I'm under no illusion that you're going to hear everything I say this morning. Kind of similar to last week, there's going to be different jumping off points. So there are going to be some points that you jump off and you say, you know, this is all I can take today. I got to really think about this. And if you, if that's like already, then that's fine with me. Some of you, you're going to follow all the way to the end. And at the end, you're going to be like, that's my jumping off point. And it may be somewhere in the middle. I'm going to give you some permission this morning that, you know, you, you may not always feel that you have, but you do. But I'm going to give you some permission that as we go through this, um, you know, We'll have to kind of watch our time, but if you've got a question you want to throw out while we're going through this, just throw it out there, and if I don't have an answer, I'll find an answer, but um, if you've got a question this morning, throw it out, because um, that's how valuable and important this parable is. So we're going to pick up in Matthew 13, verse 36. This is where Jesus explains the parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares. It says this in verse 36, then he left the crowds. Now, just to understand a little bit what's going on here, Jesus has gone out of the house in which he's staying and crowds have formed, which is what happens whenever you heal people and raise people from the dead, right? People want to come and get to know you and probably ask you for some help. And so crowds were coming. And he's in the process of speaking to these massive crowds. And then he turns his attention like he often does to his disciples still within the earshot of those that are around. But it says he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. That means if you're already confused about this parable, you are in good company. Because the disciples who walked with Jesus were like... What what just happened? <laughs> what did you just say? You did not run this by us first. What, what are you talking about? 
Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear." Now, let's just go through initially the basics of the parable, and then let's see where that takes us. So just understanding the parable, if you're taking notes, you can follow along on our screen. Um, I'm not giving you all my notes on the screen or on version. so if you want to take some, feel free to do that. You can actually do that in version as well. So as we begin, we have to first understand who the audience is. So when we read something like this, Historically, Christians have understood this parable in different ways. And for some, they understand that there are two different groups of people, the believers and the unbelievers. And it is very easy to just say, so the believers are the wheat and the unbelievers are the tares. But that is not what this parable is saying. He is not pitting against each other, believers and unbelievers. He's literally talking to a group of people and saying, among you are wheat and tares. Now, what's interesting about the difference between wheat and tares, and why wouldn't you pull it up? So the story goes, the farmer goes out, the sower goes out and sows seed, and then that is going to grow. That's good seed. That's wheat. And then There's going to be an enemy that comes by at night and sows weeds among the wheat. And so those who are the workers in the field come and say, well, do you want us to pull that up? And he says, no. Now, you might be thinking, well, he says no, because the weeds are going to be wrapped around the wheat. And when you pull up the weeds, like at my house, you pull up the weeds, you might pull up something with it. I can tell usually the difference in the weeds and the not the weeds at my house. Probably you can too. In this audience, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail in just a minute, the weeds, the wheat and the tares literally look identical when they are planted and as they begin to grow. And so if you were to try to pull all the tares, you may not know which is wheat and which is tares. In fact, you don't actually know the difference until they have grown and they have matured. So once they have matured, then you begin to see that they're different. And you can say, hey, those are the weeds and that is the wheat. But initially, as they're sown and as they're out into the field, you cannot tell the difference literally. Now, we've got to remember that the audience that Jesus is talking to are all Jews at this point. They're all Jews. We also have to understand a little of the difference in the way God has worked in the Old Testament and the way God has worked in the New Testament. See, many of you are very familiar with the God of the New Testament. You may not be as familiar with the God of the Old Testament. Yes, I know it's the same God, but God has worked in different ways according to his will. In the Old Testament, the church, as we understand it, are made up of Jews. Those are the chosen people. And he worked through a nation. 
What Jesus did was to say, what I am offering you is not just for the Jews, but it is for all people. So the understanding of the church was not the Jews. The understanding of the church were those who really believed and followed Jesus. But what he's speaking to are a group of people that are supposed to be the church at this time. They are supposed to be the followers of God, the chosen people of God. God has sent them prophets. He has, he has anointed kings in their presence. He has spoken to them for generations about what does it look like to know me, to love me, and to follow me. So the wheat and the tares are the church. Now in this scenario, in the actual parable of the telling of the parable, he's talking about Jews. Now, as we understand what has happened since this parable was taught, Jesus changed the paradigm of the church. So this applies to us as well. So we have to understand the audience. The audience are those that have the opportunity to know the truth, to live in the truth, to walk with God and be his chosen people. And yet some within that audience are tares, not wheat. You need to understand that distinction. That is the audience. As we go through, the parable tells us a lot about what, uh, what comes next, or about what each one of these pieces are, so we don't have to do a whole lot of work in trying to figure out what he is saying. The sower is Jesus. The Son of Man is Jesus. So he is the sower. So he's the one who is out sowing. Now, what's different between this and the parable of the sower is that the seed is the gospel going out into the lives of people that would be growing. And while that is similar to what he's telling, the thorns are not the weeds in which he's mentioning because thorns are very obviously different from the wheat. But instead, he is crafting this story and he is moving his, his listeners to understand there's a difference in the way that we interpret following Jesus and how we interpret hardship that comes into our life. There are the external things that we should be able to notice, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world. We should be able to say those are in contrast to the teachings of Jesus. But there are some things in this world that will trip you up in your faith that you cannot tell the difference, most obviously. And that is where we have to spend our time figuring this out. Our audience are the Jews that we can understand as we apply this to our lives as the church today. And there are the wheat and the artificial wheat. The wheat... And the counterfeit wheat. Two different things that look the same, but they are not. One is going to be harvested into heaven. One is going to be burned in the fire. Two completely different paths. We'll get more into that. Are you intrigued? Are you not going to sleep? I know you can't go to sleep through this kind of a parable. The field, as we understand what the field is, the field is the world. Or as we understand the audience, the Jews, or in the broader context of us today, the church. That's the field in which all of this is happening. The good seed, Matthew 13, 38 says, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now remember, the parables are all about what? 
It's all about the kingdom of God. It's not about, you know, how do I just, you know, practically get through life. It's talking about how do you live within the kingdom. That's why he spoke in parables. There's so much mystery in the parables because we oftentimes don't really understand it. And one of the reasons Jesus spoke in parables is because he knew you're not really going to understand this. But it would intrigue us to the point that if we are following Jesus, we got to do some more work on our own to figure this out. So he's talking about the sons of the kingdom. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The sons uh, that are following Christ. Those who are true believers that are in the world that are growing. Perhaps those in the good soil. And they are true members of the kingdom of God. That's the good seed. Oops, I just lost my notes. Let me get them back here. All right. The question I have that... I think is another jumping off point is if this is the good seed, these are the true followers of Jesus. These are the true believers. This is what we want to think we are. At least that's what we hope that we are. How do we understand what is a true follower of Jesus? So let's just take a side from the parable for a minute. We'll come back to this. What does it look like to be the good seed, to be the sons of the kingdom? And I will tell you, you will not find in scripture a list. If there's, if there were one indicator, one indicator, that you are a son of the kingdom or a daughter of the kingdom, that indicator would be in the fruit that you produced, it looked like the kind of fruit Jesus produced. If there were one indicator, you would produce fruit that was consistent with following Jesus. Now, we can debate all day what that kind of fruit looks like. We can talk about, well, you know, I've led 15 people to the Lord. Well, I've led 150 people to the Lord. Oh, wow, well, you're really a good son of the kingdom. We could say, well, it's the way you talk or the way you act, the way you love, the way you give, the way you worship. I mean, there are lots of things that we could say, but if there were one thing, what is constantly held out to us is, is that those who know Christ and are truly following him, it will be evident by the fruit within their lives. But among that fruit, there are some places in scripture that Jesus is very specific or the scriptures are very specific about what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. Now, I know that some of you in this room, if not all of you in this room, at some point or another have questioned whether you're really a Christian. Has anyone ever thought about that? Okay, me too. And sometimes when I'm a pastor, and sometimes in the last week, right, amen? I think, gosh, Jesus, I really hope, you know, especially going through this parable, I really hope I'm not a tear. <laughs> it would be really bad if I were a tear. Let's make sure I'm not a tear. You know, that we are going to have those thoughts because a part of following Jesus is a heart of humility and it is a heart that is broken and is repentant. And whenever you are repentant, broken, and humble, you have a tendency to focus on your shortcomings. And so as you become focused on your shortcomings, that should happen. And yet those should be the things that we give to God and then we let them go because he lets them go. We can't hold on to them too tightly. And then we begin to say how terrible of a Christian we are. And then we begin to question our salvation. Anyone can have that moment within their lives. That is not the reason Jesus wants us to be repentant. He wants us to live in victory. He doesn't want us to continually live you know, in oppression of our sin. That is not what he came for. But as we look at this and as we try to understand what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, then there, these are some of the indicators. The word Christian, if we most literally understand it, is not in Scripture. However, I do believe it is a great uh, expression of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Now, not the word Christian as we understand it, but where it came from. 
The word Christian literally means little Christs. That's where it came into existence. Those who so exhibited the character and the work of Jesus that they said, you know what? That, he like, he, she, she, they're like a little Christ. That should be what is said about us. Now, some of you have kids and they're like your mini me, right? How many of you have a mini me? They're just like you. See, when my kids are at their best, they're just like me. That's not what my mother says, but that's what I say. All right. So we, we have the, our mini me's and in our mini me's, we think they are our mini me. Why? Because they may look like us because they may talk like us. They may act like us. They may have some of the same facial features or gestures as us. And so they're like a little one of us. That's exactly what the term Christian is supposed to mean. I'm a little Christ. I look like him. I talk like him. I act like him. I am like him. That is what sanctification does in the life of a person. No matter where you start, the process of sanctification, you understand the difference between justification and sanctification, right? Justification, as you read that in your scripture, literally means the place where you are justified before God through the blood of Christ. It is a one-time event. I am justified before God because I believe in Jesus. I receive him as my savior. I confess and repent of my sins. I am no longer going to be judged as an unbeliever. I've been justified through Christ. Sanctification is the process from that moment until the end of all eternity, or at least from what we know until we are in heaven with Jesus. It is that process of growing, which is why you can be just as intent and purposeful about your faith and your growth as a believer as the next person, and yet they feel like they're so far so much farther down the road than you. That doesn't mean that they love Jesus more. It means that they have grown more. And it doesn't mean that they've been a Christian longer because that, that's not really how sanctification works. It means that they have grown farther. So you can, be, you can love Jesus just as much and still look at somebody and go, wow, you're so much farther down the road than me. I mean, you trust more. You hope more. You, you, you don't get swayed. You don't worry as much. I, I, you, know, you're just, you really get it more. But sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. A second thing we can see, what does it look like to be a true follower of Jesus, is that followers of Jesus exclusively worship Jesus. Now, we can go in a lot of different directions here. Okay? We had a lot of worship going on yesterday. Some people had some pretty disappointing worship, right? We can worship all kinds of things. We can worship our sports teams. We can worship ourselves. We can worship our jobs. We can worship our spouse or our kids. There are lots of things we can worship. But Jesus says over and over and over, if you're my follower, you must exclusively worship me. John 4, 23 and 24 says, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshiper, excuse me, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He is looking for the true worshipers in which He is the only one they are worshiping. Now, again, we have to understand the process of sanctification. 
You can be certain that Jesus is the only one you're worshiping, and yet deep down inside, there's something else that is taking prominence. Part of the growing in your faith is that rooting out those things that are still more important to Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It means you still have some work to do in understanding what your true motives are. We can deceive ourselves. There are times that we figure out, oh, I thought Jesus was my everything, but you know what? It's been Jesus and something else. I need to let that something else not be there. He, they don't get the same prominence as Jesus. True followers of Jesus exclusively worship Jesus. True followers of Jesus also love God's word. Now let that sink in. True followers of Jesus love God's word. How do we know if you love God's word? Are we immersing ourselves in it? Are we thriving in it? Are we striving to do what we read? Do we just read something and say, oh, that's interesting? Or do we say, how do I make that real in my life? You think, well, that's... Maybe that's, you know, how do you come with that? Well, I'm going to back up to Psalm 119.9, and it says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the truths of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The reason that true followers of Jesus love God's word is because they want to be where God is. And they know that he has given us that in scripture. I want to know what he thinks. I want to know what he says about me. I want to know what it looks like to walk with him and to follow him. I want to know what it's like to be with him. Followers of Jesus love God's word. Fourth, we see that followers of Jesus are guided by the Holy Spirit. This is where we spent a lot of time in the last couple of years here. Because this is one of those mysterious, nebulous things and we're just not really sure what it looks like. We've had a lot of people shout from the mountaintops what it looks like to be led by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't always jive with what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. But it does say that we will be guided or led by the Holy Spirit. John sixteen twelve through 15 says, I shall have many things to say to you. But you can't hear them now. I think that's so interesting that Jesus is saying this to his disciples. You are not ready to hear it all yet. You've got to go a little farther before you're ready for some of this. But he goes on to say in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. The Holy Spirit takes what is the Father's and he declares it to you. Which means when we're going to follow Jesus, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us do that. That's a hard indicator. I look into my life sometimes and I think, Holy Spirit is at work. And sometimes I wonder, is the Holy Spirit anywhere around me? But what Scripture tells us is that we are guided by Him. Fifth thing, what does it look like to be a good seed? 
Followers of Jesus are servants. I, I find this is one of those indicators of where a person's heart is with Christ. That when we talk about producing fruit, this is one of them because service is not a value in our culture. We don't seek to serve, we seek to be served. Now, if you're going to seek a lifetime of service, what you're going to find is that you have to then take on a humble interior. Notice I said interior, not exterior. My dad and I joke about which of us is the most humble, and I always am more humble than him. That is a humble exterior. I'm putting it on to impress you. It has no real value nor meaning for you. Okay, A humble interior means that what you are driven by is humility. This is when Jesus says, count others more than yourself. This is part of it. And one of those indicators, and this is why service is a value at Journey, and if you are not in a place of service, you need to be. That does not mean that all of your service that indicates Jesus is doing something in you has to be in the church. In fact, there's a problem when all of our service is in the church. See, that's supposed to go out with us wherever we go, not just when you walk in these doors. Well, I put in my hour or an hour and a half or whatever with kids, and I'm, I'm caring for the little kids, so that's like worth double the time, right? But now I'm done until my next shift. Now I'm ready to go out and be served. But the heart of a follower of Jesus says, I am not here to be served. I am here to serve others it is the pouring out so when we look at someone's life and we go wow they are so focused on others and serving others i wish i could be there and i think oh if you're not there that's not good when jesus describes this he describes it as this is one of his central characteristics of his time here in this place mark 10 42 through 45 jesus called them to him and said to him you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you But whoever will be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So service is one of those beautiful indicators of where is my heart with Christ. If I'm thinking about all the things people are not doing for me, something's wrong. Instead, followers of Jesus become servants. That does not mean that you do everything somebody asks of you. Amen? Because we can take this into some false spiritual realm that says, I honor Jesus by serving every single person for every single desire that they have. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was very intent on his purpose, and he was driven in a direction, but he was constantly serving others with his greatest act of service being on the cross. But there should be within us a desire to serve others. Not just a desire as in, okay, I did it. I didn't like it. But I did it. Yeah, I know no one in here does that, right? We've never served and thought, you know what? I, that was just awful. That never happens, does it? You go in and you're holding the babies, and it's all great in your mind. Because you're going to just you know, rock them and sing them, and then they have an explosion out the rear, and you're like, this is not how I imagined this was going to be, right? 
Uh, yeah, all over you. You know, people walk by and they see it and you look at them like, help. And they kind of smile and just thankful it's not them and they walk on and you're thinking, this is, I don't feel like a servant. I mean, I'm serving, but I don't like it. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but it also doesn't mean that you just do it because you have to. The heart of a person who wants to serve finds joy in the service. I see that in so many people in our church. And I'm like, you just, I'm so worried about you. You serve so much. Ah, this brings joy to me to be able to serve. That is the heart of a follower of Jesus. It's not just that we have to do it. This is the problem with contemporary Christianity today is we come up with a list of rules and we say, okay, I I get it. I'm supposed to serve. How many? Give me a number. How many times a month am I supposed to serve? I'll, I'll make sure I get it done. That is not the heart of service. The heart of service is one who says, I am here to serve. I find joy in serving. And while you may not like having that exploding diaper on your hands and your legs and your arms and shoulders and the back of your shirt, you're not sure how it got there. You may, you may not like that. But you still find some inward joy in service because the Holy Spirit is saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And even in the hardest tasks of serving and the things that we don't enjoy, the things that we don't like, there is something that the Holy Spirit does within us that says, well done. And a person who loves Jesus and follows Jesus will do anything. And it doesn't matter how hard it is when they hear those words. It is just like being refreshed and made new. This is a huge indicator of a follower of Jesus. Where are you in the area of serving others? A sixth thing, what does it look like to be this, the good seed? Followers of Jesus demonstrate love towards others. It said in John 13, 34, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's like he's saying it over and over and over again. I want you to get this. Your love for others will be evident. I think this is hard for us today because what the world views as love and what Jesus views as love are not the same thing. And so we sometimes read this and think that other people outside in the world are going to look at me. They're going to see me being loving and they're going to know that I'm being loving. And yet we live in such a twisted culture and it's not new. It's been this way. It's been this way. Always. It's always this way. They look at us and they don't see the love of Christ What they see is a denial of ultimate personal freedom to do whatever they want. That's what our culture wants. That's where we're driven to. I want perfect, ultimate freedom to do whatever I want. And if you love me, you will not only let me, you will applaud me when I do it. It doesn't take much living life to realize that's not always a good thing. Some of the worst things that have ever happened in my life, I walked into freely thinking they were going to be the best things in my life. But it does look like we are loving others. That's another conversation. Number seven. And, and it's not that these are the only seven, but these are some of the most obvious ones that Jesus said. This is it. Number seven. Followers of Jesus are also sowing seed too. It means that they're going out and they want other people to know how good this is. They want to see the kingdom grow. They want to see people to go from death to life, oppression to freedom. They want to see that. John 20, 19 through 22, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is at the end of his time with his disciples. I've been here. I'm now sending you to be those little Christs to go out and do what I've been doing. Those are just some of the most obvious indicators that Scripture tells us what does it look like to be a good seed. But that's just part of this parable. See, we're, we could stop right now, and we're not only halfway through. That's the good seed. Then we have the tares, the weeds. This is where things get a little rough, right? We're okay with all that other. Maybe I'm there, maybe I'm not, but I'm okay with all of that. But the tares and the weeds, I'm not sure I'm okay with this part of the parable. Matthew 13, 38, the end of that and the beginning of verse 39 says, The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now there has been a concerted effort within Christendom to eradicate the devil from our theology and practice in life. Now, I can see why that is the case. We attribute so many things to the devil that has nothing to do with the devil. (laughs) We make a bad choice, it was the devil. The devil made me do it. Something bad happens, and it's just a random bad thing that happened, but the devil is at work, right? And so what we've done is we've swung like we always do in culture. We swing the pendulum to the far other side. We won't correct the misunderstanding of the devil. We'll just pretend he doesn't exist. We'll ignore the caricatures and all those things that people have and people dressing up this week as the devil and because we know that's so silly. That's not what he is at all. He's not this red thing with a big pointy tail that carries around a trident with him. We know that's not the picture of, of satan and scripture but scripture does not ever say oh here's an analogy of evil i'm going to call it satan never refers to evil that way always refers to satan as an actual existent being this is why we shut down on these parables and why we don't talk about these kind of parables because who wants to live in a world that there's an active devil an active satan at work who wants to live in that world And yet Jesus is saying in this parable, not only does that person exist, while there are sons of the kingdom, there are sons of the evil one too, and they're all in the same field, and they are hard to distinguish between until it's ready for the harvest. Now, if you don't grapple with these issues as a believer, you're missing a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying you need to focus on Satan, okay? Don't walk out there and go, I just need to think about Satan for a while. That is not what I'm saying. See, the picture of the kingdom, the grappling of following Jesus is bigger than we often want to believe it is. We want things to be small, manageable, easy. We come up with these trite excuses for why the world is where it, the way it is and ignoring the fact that the kingdom is bigger, more complex, and more active than the world we see with our eyes. This is why when we kind of flirt with evil, this is why we, when we listen to people that are constantly giving creditation to evil, 
This is why when we take it lightly, when we watch TV shows about evil or movies about evil, this is, this is why it messes with us. Because something is happening supernaturally, spiritually around us and in us. But we so convinced ourselves it doesn't exist that we just let it in and it just destroys us while we're it's saying it doesn't exist. The sons of the evil one are not Christians, but they closely resemble Christians based on this parable. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. This is why I rewrote this sermon. Because I can easily go down deep and, and, and not come back up. And that is not what Jesus meant when he said you will be a conqueror. We can easily go into a place where we just talk about the evil in the world and be so focused on the evil that we forget that Jesus conquered the evil. So as we look at the tares, the sons of the evil one are not Christians, but they closely resemble them. There is a difference between a a son of the evil one and just someone who doesn't believe. It would be wrong to say this parable are about believers and unbelievers, period. All unbelievers are sons of the evil one. He's not saying that because clearly there are people in the world that do not look like a Christian at all. He's talking about these are people that look like you, like Christians. Now remember, our audience are Jews. These are people that are following the practice. And who do you think he's speaking to here? Is he speaking to just, you know, Joe Schmo over here and he's been following Jesus and trying to keep the law and he's been following through on, on all of the festivals and the practices of what it meant to be an observant Jew and he has loved God and he has followed. Is that who he's talking to? In all reality, we know who he's talking to. He's talking to those who put on the face of a follower and yet there is nothing in their heart that demonstrates that is real. Those Pharisees, those scribes, Sadducees, those who lord over others and pretend to love God, and yet all of their goals are selfish. This is what is in the church today. If you think, Mark, you're being so, so much of a downer. Well, Acts 20, 28 through 30 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock talking to shepherds. This is what Paul is saying. Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers who care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He says this is going to happen. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this about the challenges he's faced as a minister. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers? This isn't new. This is a new strategy. 
This has been going on. What do we do with this information, (laughs) right? We need to form a committee and figure out who's a terror, and we need to root them out, which is exactly the way some people respond and exactly why the parable says, don't do anything. God will work this out in the end. So as we look at this, the uncomfortable truth about what Jesus is saying begins to sink in. Because Jesus wasn't saying that if you pull up the tares, you may pull up the wheat. He was saying that they so closely resemble each other, you won't be able to tell a difference for a while. But eventually you will be able to tell a difference. This is why Jesus called us over and over, watch for false teachers. Watch for false brethren. Watch for wolves in sheep's clothing. Because there is a way that is real and there is a way that is false. There is a way that leads to life that makes sense. And there, but that leads to destruction. We have to be a watch. We have to be aware of what's going on. There are not only believers in the church, there are counterfeit believers. People that look like believers, talk like believers, say they're believers, but they're not believers. What are we supposed to do with that? It feels like we should do something, right? I mean, what greater betrayal is for somebody to pretend to be something they're not, right? If you've ever had somebody pretend to be your friend and then they're not... There's few betrayals worse than that, right? Someone who says they love you and then they hurt you terribly and find no remorse in it, that feels terrible. Feels like we should do something. That's not what Jesus is saying. Whatever true followers, when, excuse me, wherever true followers of Jesus are planted based on this parable, you will find counterfeits that look similar but are followers of the evil one. Let that sink in. I'm not saying this. This is what Jesus is saying. Okay? Wherever true followers of Jesus are planted, you will find counterfeits that look similar but are followers of the evil one. And their goal is to steal the gospel. As a thorn chokes them out, they covertly come in and will choke out your faith. Because while they say they love and follow Jesus, they're actually following something else. This is why we have to be on guard. We have to be aware. So what does this practically look like? In Matthew 23, this is practically what it looks like. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much as a child of hell or a child of the devil as yourselves. I mean, this is what they're saying. We're seeing this over and over and over again. 
Sons of, e- of the evil ones seek to multiply themselves by closely resembling Christians, but leading them in the opposite direction. But here's the problem with this scenario versus the thorns in the parable of the sower. Do you, you know how, you know, you, you heard the old adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time, right? You know, how, how do you cook a live frog? I'm not trying to gross you out here. But you put in room temperature water and slowly raise the heat. So the way that these work is they don't come in and they don't refute what you believe about Jesus. They just adjust it. And then you begin to where you're following Jesus and then someone, it sounds good, and they adjust it. And you turn just a little bit. And then you go in this direction. And with every turn, it becomes easier to turn until before you know it. Jesus is nowhere to be seen in your life because someone has influenced you a little at a time. This is why it is so crucial to be a student of Scripture. That is our greatest defense against being turned. And that is why we are in such a state as the church today because so few hide His Word in their hearts. We just don't spend time in His Word. We don't know what the truth is. And there are people that are very convincing and are completely wrong. Who is the sower of the seed in this parable? Satan, the evil one. That's what Jesus says. Who are the reapers, the harvesters? Who's going to come in and separate them? He says the angels are going to do that. And then what is the harvest? The parable says it's the end of the age, and yet for us, perhaps that end of the age is when we die. Perhaps that time at the end of the age is when Jesus returns. I, but there's coming a time and there's going to be a final judgment. This uncomfortable place of being in the final judgment. The harvest is the moment that our false personas are burned away and our true selves are judged. See, we can survive in this world with a lot of false personas. But what's on the inside is what, ju- what God looks at. It's what's judged. And we can't fool Him. We can deceive ourselves. We can't deceive God. The harvest is coming. You think, well, that's kind of harsh. Maybe He doesn't mean to really be as harsh as this parable is. Well, He follows that parable up with the parable of the debt. Have you ever heard of that one? Probably not. Let me read it to you. It says... Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be with the, at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like, Jesus, are you trying to get followers or not? Right? This isn't helping. What do you think about when you think about the final judgment? Fear? Anger? This isn't fair? This isn't a loving God? Does it lead you to hope? Does this lead you to turn your gaze on people to say they need to know Jesus? They need to know what's true. What do you think about the final judgment? If you have fear about the final judgment, yeah, well, join the club.
But if we know Jesus, we shouldn't be living by that fear. If we know Jesus, we are thankful that we have nothing to fear in the final judgment. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, has taken our punishment. Some of the things we have to be very careful about in the parable like this. Are we more concerned with the judgment of others than we are with our own? Do we look at the people that we disagree with, the people that we think, oh, I know, I know who some tares are, and I can't wait for them to burn. See, the church has taken that stance before, and it is a horrendous, it is completely devoid of the love of Christ in that way of viewing the world. You can still love justice and mourn that there are those that will not end up in heaven for eternity. You can mourn that. But you cannot celebrate the destruction of people. When we celebrate the destruction of people, we deny the fact that, that we are just like them. It's just that we have found Christ. You have to be careful. The church has taken that stance. It is a debilitating, destructive stance for the gospel. Are we as motivated to reach the lost as we are to see the unjust punished? This week, news has put in front of us so many unjust things People doing terrible things from sending bombs to shooting up a church. And we look at that and we go, that, there is evil in this world. And they need to pay for what they've done. But remember, Jesus never called someone that did bad things a son of the evil one. He called people that look, tried to look like Christians but follow the evil one. Those were sons of the evil one. He never came up to somebody on the street and said, because of your sin, you're a son of the devil. He never said that. There's a difference. There's a distinction. And our heart should go to them just as Christ's heart went to those whose lives were caught up in sin. All right, I got I to gotta finish this up. I've already given you more than you can probably handle today. Uh, implications. Let me give you four implications for this that you can take away, and then some of the responses you can have to this, and then we'll, we'll close for today. Some of the implications. Number one, Jesus is still sowing good seed. Many of you in this room, all of us who know Jesus, maybe all of us in this room, I don't know, we are indicators that he is still sowing good seed. Okay? Jesus is still sowing good seed. Number two, implication is, the enemy is still sowing evil seed to discourage the good seed. Still happening. That may be happening in your life right now. Let me ask you something. Is your life, as you look over it as a field, is your life full of wheat with a few weeds? Or is your life full of weeds and you're not sure where the wheat is? Still happening. Still trying to frustrate you in your faith. Still trying to get you to turn your gaze away from Christ third implication in this is that following jesus has to be our focus it has to be our identity it has to be the passion that drives everything else that we do he has to be our pearl of great price he has to be that our greatest treasure he has to be our joy he he is our calling we have to look at him and he we are focused on following him it cannot just be that thing we do on sundays it cannot just be that thing i think about in addition to the other things i think about we are either all in or we're not even in the ballpark there's no two ways about it when jesus talks about being hot or cold or lukewarm be hot be in be cold be out if you're lukewarm trying to be in and out i will spit you from my mouth that is a terrible place to be because you are deceiving yourself 
I want you to know you're either in or you're out. Now, I know that is incredibly exclusive, but I didn't come up with it. The inclusive part of this is that Jesus says, all who call on my name, all who believe in me can be saved. I want all people to be saved. We choose not to be. Number four, the implication, disciples have to be aware of those trying to weaken your faith. And there are a lot of people who are very popular religious speakers and authors who will weaken your faith because they will shift your attention from Jesus just a little bit, a little bit more, and a little bit more. We have to be vigilant. Fifth, the final judgment is still coming. And we can't reason our way through it. It is coming. So how do we wrap this up without being, walk out of here all depressed? You're going to have three responses to this parable. One is fear and loathing. This isn't fair. What if I don't get in? What if my friends don't get in? What if my kids don't get in? What if my spouse doesn't get in? What if my parents don't get in? What if my best friends don't get in? This isn't fair. Fear and loathing. Listen, we want to prolong this life as long as we can because... I just don't like this. That could be a response to the parable. A second one is a response of indignation and self-righteousness. Oh, I'm in, but I'm pretty sure you're not. That is not the way Jesus would ever lead us to respond. A third response to this parable is the one that I believe Jesus wants us to take apart from just being aware that this is going on within the kingdom in which you and I are citizens, is that we can be thankful, expectant, knowing that this is going to happen, and we can be prepared. That is why Jesus taught. Which means let me follow him with purpose. Let us reach as many as we possibly can as Billy Graham is quoted as saying, just one more, just one more, even on his deathbed. But rather than taking this with fear and trembling, receiving this parable as a cautionary tale, let us joyfully receive it knowing what Jesus has done so we can be with him in the harvest. So what do I leave with you? Yeah, I really struggle with how to wrap this thing up. I would leave you with this. Enjoy Jesus. Follow him. And stay focused on becoming more like him. James 1, 19 through 22 says, this is the way you do that. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. How do we live out being part of the kingdom? Sons of God? Followers of Jesus? Not only do we implant the word within our hearts, but we become doers of the word. We think about the word. We think about where we're 
fully living it out and where we're not. We read something, we go, oh, that, I, that is such a struggle for me. I need to figure out how to make this a part of my life where I am a doer of this word. If you're not regularly every single week coming across something in scripture that says, oh, I got to be a doer of the word. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're not going to reach the place where you just go, gosh, I have got this licked. Man, I'm a good Christian. You're not going to get there. But instead, this is what it looks like. It doesn't mean that you do all the word. It means, though, that you are focused on it. There are so many places in Scripture. I'm like, Jesus, I am so sorry. (laughs) It's like I can't get this. I'm going to tell you something. If you say that to Jesus, the fact that you're trying to get it is huge. Fully live within that knowing that Jesus is leading you and that process of sanctification is to grow you. I don't know where to, I don't know what you're going to take away from this. I've given you 